This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing great and doing even better because we have the opportunity today to once again bring the caliber of guest to the listeners' ears that we always strive for. And this is a repeat guest that we have on. He always really brings a toolbox of knowledge with him so that we can pick apart these crimes and try to figure out the, you know, that ultimate question, the why in why people do these things. But before we get to him, I already know how he is. He was doing great. How are you? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. I am really excited to introduce this conversation with criminologist, author, professor, former police officer, Michael Arntfield. And he has written some great books, Lance. And one of them is called How to Solve a Cold Case. That is his most recent one. I listened to it via audiobook, and it is a great listen, so I really can't recommend that highly enough. The uh, subtitle is, And Everything Else You Wanted to Know About Catching Killers. So you can see why it's right up our alley. I'm sure it would be right up our listeners' alleys as well. And if you want to check out more on Michael, you can look at his website, Michael Arntfield, and that's Michael A-R-N-T-F-I-E-L-D dot com, where you can see all about what he does, his books, his TV appearances, his consultation work. He's also like a threat assessment expert. I mean, this guy has done pretty much everything in the spectrum of law enforcement. So a really good guy to have on our side. And Michael is also on the board of directors of the Murder Accountability Project, which you can find out more information about at murderdata.org. They track America's unsolved homicides, and we do speak about this a little bit with Michael in the interview. We are lucky to have him, and we are kind of, um, I guess you could say, mind-hunting in this episode. We released a series on the unsolved murder of Sheila Shepard from 1980 in Saratoga Springs, New York. You can scroll back just a couple months and find that series here on Missing. So one of the things we had always wanted to do was follow up with someone like Michael, and really, Michael is the perfect person to run some ideas by and ask him some questions about Sheila's murder. Some of it he speaks generally, but some of it we speak very specifically, and you'll hear some clips from our series on Sheila Shepard's murder. I love the fact that we speak generally and then very specifically, because sometimes you do have to take that wider view, that that wider lens perspective in order to take it all in before getting down to the finer details of it. And we were communicating about this earlier that Sheila's murder is like a perfect storm for anybody who is looking into profiling a crime like this unsolved the law enforcement is open for assistance in Sheila's case and there's so many elements to this that once you think you know what happened something else backs up something completely different so it really is again like a perfect storm for anybody who wants to profile a murder like this 
And we also speak about the solved murder of Melissa Jenkins a little bit in this episode. And we start that part of the conversation by asking Michael about killers who kill in teams. Um, And that is what we found in the murder of Melissa Jenkins with Patricia and Alan Prue. And as far as teams are concerned, Patricia and Alan Prue were married. They were convicted of kidnapping and subsequently murdering Melissa Jenkins, who was a Vermont school teacher. She was 33 years old at the time, and both of the Prues are currently serving life sentences. This happened on March 25th, 2012, and we did cover this in two episodes in December of 2022. So be sure to check those out. And Tim, this is a fantastic conversation, but some people might think it would be more fantastic if there were no ads in there. And is there some place where they can find this episode plus every single other episode we've produced without those ads? I mean, there's got to be a place on this there is a place. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's called Missing Premium. Folks can now subscribe in their Apple Podcasts app to Missing Premium. You get ad-free episodes, you get early releases, and our weekly bonus show, which you will love. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the exact same product there. And let's talk social media. If people wanted to get updated on things that we're doing or episodes, where would they go if they wanted to get these updates via social media? Well, listeners can find us on social media at missingcsm. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here, and we'll be right back with Michael Arntfield. Michael Arntfield, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? Good, guys. Good to be back. You guys are doing well. This is always a fun show to, all things considered, given the content, be uh, a part of. I like the way you uh, worded that. It is a, it is. We try to keep it a little bit light here, even though we are talking about some dark topics, and you are an expert on numerous dark topics. Uh, and the second we ended our last interview with you, our last conversation, I think we both were simultaneously texting each other, Tim and I, saying we got to get him back on again for something else, because that was one of the most intensely informative conversations we've had in a while. Here I am in the flesh, back, so good stuff. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for coming back. Uh, We really appreciate it. Um, You know, as always on these shows, we have some cases that we cover, and we try to make some sense of most recently, we released a series on the unsolved murder of Sheila Shepard from 1980 in Saratoga Springs, New York. Okay, here are some quick facts about Sheila Shepard's unsolved murder. She was found deceased on Tuesday, November 25th, 1980 in her apartment in Saratoga Springs, New York. It's believed that Sheila was killed during the evening of Saturday, November 22nd, 1980, or the early morning hours of Sunday, November 23rd. She was 22 years old at the time and had one child with her estranged husband, Richard Shepard. The child was not staying with either of them at the time of Sheila's murder. The official cause of death is asphyxiation, and there were no signs of sexual assault. Sheila was found under a bedsheet, naked, with her four limbs each being tied to a different bedpost. There was a post-mortem stab wound, and the knife was left protruding out of Sheila's lower abdomen. It's believed the knife used was from Sheila's kitchen. 
This is a case from 1980, and in our series, we kind of ran into a um, situation where we're a little bit caught in the middle between a new, newer investigative technique versus the original investigator's technique, which was kind of uh, sort of like keep, keep as much evidence as possible um, without releasing to the public. Can you tell us uh, your thoughts on, uh, on holdback evidence? So holdback evidence, as the name implies, is evidence that is held back or withheld from public disclosure because uh, there's a number of reasons. One, they, they, they don't want to show all their cards for the suspect. They don't want to promote copycatting. If there's a very obscure or ritualistic signature, for instance, they don't want anybody, anybody getting ideas. But at the same time, that, that degree of specificity regarding the facts is also how police are going to vet uh, and corroborate either tips or confessions uh, or just witness information. Someone calls up and said, yeah, my husband came home three hours late and uh, disheveled and sweaty and uh, had, a, had a cut on his hand and his story was weird. He's never had any connection to this victim. I'm just giving a hypothetical scenario. But right there, uh, for instance, if if, if the, the nature of the weapon or the nature of the injury was, was holdback evidence, you the police are going to know that there's something to this maybe and then this is not someone uh with some other outlandish story that can neither be you know verified nor falsified so uh, this is a good way of managing information managing the flow of information after time it's important that investigators reevaluate what they're what they're withholding so i mean in the, in the initial days and weeks and even months yeah, you're not going to reveal what souvenirs were taken. You're not going to reveal the nature, the specific nature of the weapon necessarily. If the body was moved or posed or something done to it, as there was in in, in this case with the, the 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 placement of the sheet over the over the face, uh, you're not going to reveal that. Um, and I'm not sure what some of that what value that would add eventually if you were to release that. So saying the body was covered isn't necessarily going to yield any greater number or quality of tips, but. If a souvenir was taken and someone can think back and say, you know, so after two years, maybe they want to say, you know what, let's 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 release the fact that photographs were taken as souvenirs uh, and see if this this jogs any memories of someone who just all of a sudden was in possession of these what seemed to be other people's albums. I can remember a case here in Canada cited in my last book, How to Solve a Cold Case, whereby for 45 years, they withheld the fact that this young girl's death as a result of being run over by a car. And then they decided, well, we're, now we're going to reveal it was <laughs> she was struck by a car intentionally, apparently. That would have been nice to know when body shops could have been canvassed, when neighbors may have noticed that the car parked in the driveway is no longer there, uh, when, again, body men out of, out of jurisdiction even uh, have customer from out of town showing up with damage consistent with what they've read in the news. All that would have been key then. I don't know why that was held back. And I don't know what who was thinking what to say? Well, now let's reveal it 45 years later. It's it's entirely useless. If anything, it just underscores how mismanaged the original investigation was. So that's another thing investigators need to consider is, okay, if we're going to incrementally sort of loosen up on some of this holdback information, which of these are going to A, yield ideally uh, useful tips maybe stimulate the offender if he's still alive and monitoring the case in the media and get him sweating and maybe doing something stupid and which revelations are going to also reflect poorly on the department. It's not just like they go down a list and say, okay, after three years, release this, after three years, release that. This is really a a, a very nuanced process that, that in these conversations take place at sort of the highest levels.
in your experience, have have you ever seen a investigator from a previous generation influence the investigators in the current generation? Because specifically speaking, when we were in the room and the initial investigator who was looking into Sheila Shepard's murder took issue with something that we had seen that perhaps we shouldn't have seen that the other investigators gave to us to look at. And there was nothing taken from the apartment. The only thing that's been like reported as missing is the photographs, right? Uh, I'd rather not comment what what is missing from the apartment, if anything. You know the protocol on those release of that information? You could tell that he was influencing them, saying, well, I don't really think this should be out there right now. But he wasn't on the case anymore, and he no longer worked for the for law enforcement. Have you ever seen anything like that? And does he have any authority to do that? And do they have any cause to listen to him? That's a good question. So does he have authority to do it? No. Is there an institutional ownership of these cases or a perceived institutional ownership whereby there is a, a continuity of previous and current investigators, both living and dead, whose wishes and methods you sort of need to respect and not and 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 and, and take with a grain of salt in the context of of the time in which they were operating. So you won't see a lot of new investigators throw the original investigators under the bus or or totally uh, lampoon the original investigation. In many cases, they could, but they don't. I mean, again, whose benefit does that serve? The idea is that this is a team effort from beginning to end. No single investigator, while they can have brilliant ideas or inroads, owns the case. So no, while it looks like a previous investigator has this misguided sense of ownership over this case, in in reality, I think they're they're influencing the new generation to, to say, you know what, uh, toe the line, uh, get this solved. But at the same time, bear in mind, you know, respect your elders and bear in mind that this is the institution's case, not not yours. So we all need to 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 know that. I have seen the flip side of that though done well, where current investigators on Cold Case Task Force would go, for instance, this is covered in my book, Murder City, uh, about this, the serial killer capital of North America, where once a task force was finally actioned late 90s into all these sexual murders from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they went to one of the original investigators as sort of like a Yoda figure who was retired and, 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 and living off, off the grid uh, to get ideas from him. And to, to pick his brain because the notes and his reports from that era only only told so much. So he really sort of, I think, helped mentor them because, again, surviving records from like the Shepherd case is 80. But I mean, if you go back further than that, these records are really paltry. So you need a living witness really to, you know, to see all the all the colors of the case. Now, what about a a bed sheet found over the victim's body or just really covering of a murder victim by the killer. What, what does that tell us about the killer or their connection to the victim? There's different schools of thought on this. Uh, and again, it varies by case, but in general, uh, the covering of uh, the face in particular is uh, correlated with a process known as undoing psychological undoing by the offender. So, uh, this is often associated with cases where there's a, there's a, a, a frenzied murder in the heat of the moment, crime of passion, uh, and then very quickly a sense of sort of remorse. And as part of the confusion and panic about what to do next, uh, as the offender is, and even experienced offenders in, in a state of sort of fight or flight and, 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 and very hypervigilant and heightened and, and nervous, 
time moves by very slowly as they're, they're trying to contemplate their next moves. And while they're there, uh, as brutal as the crime seems, they have a difficult time looking at the, the victim's face either. And, and not necessarily because it's remorse. They have remorse, frequently remorse. And so it's called undoing, meaning like they're trying to mitigate or ameliorate the brutality of what they've done, at least for themselves. So it's a, it's a temporary coping strategy, but often because it's a distraction. So uh, again, based on the nature of the crime, the, the the victim looking at them may be enough of a distraction that they just, they don't want to see it in their peripheral vision. They don't want to have to keep, their eyes keep being drawn to it. So, so cover up what they've done. There's no evidentiary value to doing that. I mean, especially in a, in a residence, you're not, you're not camouflaging the body from a passerby and delaying its discovery. That's, that's purely intrinsic for the offender. So it's uh, so it serves no instrumental or, or counter investigative purpose. It's purely emotional. It's purely because they don't want to look at them, and whether that's due to to pathos or regret, not necessarily remorse, which is different, but regret for what they've done and reminds them of of that, or or just distraction and annoyance. That's that's why that's done. So frequently, when that is seen, the thought is, and again, each case is different, that this is someone at least with enough common sense and enough latent empathy that they either knew the victim and there is some, again, latent sense of, uh, I'm sorry, this, I did this, or that this person likely hasn't killed before. And by, and by covering up the victim, at least until they get used to this and, 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 and their, their post-crime behaviors become a little bit more sophisticated and, and they can manage better in that stressful moment that this is a strategy that, there's, that they're using. There is one notable exception to that I can think of. And it's, again, a Canadian case covered in Murder City where uh, the undoing, very psychologically complex offender. He was a, a competitive bodybuilder, very well-liked, very sociable, uh, but he had debilitating obsessive-compulsive disorder. And, and part of his intrusive thoughts, his obsessions were, were uh, necrophilic fantasies. So he trained every day to go to the gym so that he had the, the strength and dexterity. This is pre-parkour. Uh, to scale apartment building exteriors like Spider-Man. And he would go through unlocked balconies on upper floors. If women lived alone, he would smother them in bed and then uh, have sexual relations with the corpses. But then his idea of undoing, because this is well beyond a, a, a crime of passion. He's put considerable fantasy investment into this. He's trained and rehearsed for this. He would deep clean the entire apartment and do their dishes. And so he would leave the, in, in his view, he was leaving the body in this, in this pristine mausoleum state, the house was staged to dignify the victim in death. And that's ultimately what got him caught because the first two crimes were thought to be uh, accidental overdoses because it just by weird luck, they were both on the same meds and they thought maybe it was positional asphyxia after they took too many of these sedatives. And then eventually they got more violent and they realized in looking at the, the crime scenes that the families were saying like, they don't live like this. Like someone has tampered with this scene, but instead of tampering with the scene to to eliminate evidence. He cleaned not to eliminate evidence. He cleaned to undo psychologically for him. And this comes from him directly because he confessed to everything ultimately later on. Wow. That is so fascinating. Did you say that after the crime occurs, time moves very slowly for the individual? Can you unpack that a little bit more? Like what is going on in their minds this comes from interviews with offenders as well as with uh, anyone involved in, in a traumatic incident. So, so think about the training, for instance, that a police officer or, or will under, undergo, but post-officer-involved shootings, 
uh, again, they, they debrief with people and they explain what's going on. I mean, they, 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 they're much more, you would think in, in most cases in control of their emotions and better trained than say a serial killer is acting impulsively and maladaptively. So, I mean, they're, they're not doing things in their own best interest and, and, and they're, they're causing harm to themselves, but there's pro- a couple processes. One is tacky psyche. The other one is time space sort of distortion, acoustical delays and distortion whereby often there's or auditory exclusion is another term there's a, there's a number of terms basically for you focus your eyes sort of take over and your other senses are are, are blunted so you won't hear things frequently there's, there's there's cases of people post and when i say post like within the seconds or minutes after a traumatic incident where someone's killed and this, the scene is frenetic. They they can't hear. They don't register voices. They they their their eyes are obviously dilated, and they're trying to they're reverting to a, a primal state. Basically, cortisol, adrenaline kick in, which then um, has other effects on the body in terms of how time is processed. Um, so what feels like minutes is like seconds. So things slow down, but at the same time, uh, for the person involved, speed up. And this is why you have phenomenal like post-traumatic stress disorder where this that feeling then is triggered by other sort of hypersensory uh, events that the person is involved in the difference between officer involved shootings or, or military encounters and serial killers is of course many serial killers that are still operating in a fantasy mode and, and a lot of what they've done doesn't register until much later if it does at all but again when you see a disorganized scene like the one in the in the in the shepherd case you're, you're frequently dealing with someone who has acted spontaneously and is now trying to figure things out and that is not a that is not a uniform or, or non-stressful process. Interesting. And uh, you mentioned the covering of the body, the undoing uh, could also be a sign of, of inexperience. Yeah, the go-to is always, well, they must have known the, their, their killer because they now see them as a person in death, whereas they were strictly a, a something to be coveted or, or owned or, 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 or sexually assaulted. But now, you know, that the, the heat of the moment has, has receded, They're, they see them as a person again. Not necessarily. Uh, and again, the Russell Maurice Johnson case, the one I just discussed, I mean, undoing can be very psychologically idiosyncratic to the offender, whereby, again, it's a distraction, it's an annoyance, it's they're not remorseful, and, and they're, they, it doesn't upset them looking at this person, but it might anger them that they lost control. So by dehumanizing them and not making them visible at all, this is just now a, a mass, a biological mass covered in a sheet I need to, to deal with, and I'll figure that out versus this person who a minute ago, I decided that I was going to do this horrible crime to. Okay. One of the details about Sheila Shepard's murder, which perplexes everybody is the post-mortem stab wound in her torso, right below her navel. It was proven to be post-mortem. How do you see that? Yeah, there's there's a, a contradiction of crime scene behavior seen in, in this case to the extent that, and without second guessing the quality of the the ME's work or the crime scene work at the time let's bear in mind it was 1980 until recent developments in Europe where now we can narrow time of death to like a couple minutes time of death is a really is a moving target especially in 1980 so i would need to and maybe you've got it see the specific lab report they're relying on to to say that that's post mortem Sheila's um it's the cause of death was uh, asphyxiation so she has, a, she has a gag in her mouth. The scene is almost staged to look like it's violent. She's, she's tied up, she's stabbed in the abdomen, but it all looks to be post-mortem. 
stab wound, they, they have a picture from the autopsy where the knife doesn't hit any organs. Any organs, yeah. Just nothing that would, and it's a small, it's like a, not a butter knife, but it's like yeah, the size a of a butter knife. like Steak knife, like a small yeah. steak knife. But you'd have trouble cutting a steak with it. I would love to to talk to the coroner if, yeah. uh, you know, if you were alive, say, how sure are you? I mean, I know you're going off of pretty much the same science that we are now, you know, the lividity and the you know, rigor yeah. mortis and stuff like that. But, you know, if it just, it opens up all sorts of other possibilities. If like, well, okay, say she was killed on, on Monday yeah. and not, you know, then people who have, you know, alibis or who weren't in town right. and that weekend, like, well, okay, well now if could have happened Monday, do they come back into play? So asphyxiation with what's called an improvised gag, uh, which is when a an item immediately available, and, and again, in a couple of cases in, in Canada covered in Murder City, uh, appears to have been brought to the scene as a ritual by the, the by the offender. But an improvised gag in most cases is something can be shoved in the in their mouth to avoid them from biting, from screaming, to muffle. In some cases, it has an additional sexual purpose. But and evidence of sexual assault or no? No. No evidence. But she was she was naked and tied to the bed with her hands, her wrists, and her ankles. And again, the thought is that the, the bindings are post-mortem. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And property of hers. So nothing that the killer brought in that we know of. So like maybe, a, I think it was like a like a robe tie. And then and I think shoelaces. shoelaces as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. So, I mean, uh, an offender brings binding their own bindings to a scene, fits a certain archetype, uh, highly sadistic, highly organized. This doesn't sound organized. I mean, it sounds like a lot of this, quite frankly, is probably crime scene staging, uh, whereby there's this elaborate tableau set up uh, where she's tied to the bed. It looks ritualistic. It looks sadistic. And then stabbing would be, yeah, like this was a, a frenzied sexual homicide when it wasn't. That at the same time, improvised gags are frequently sexual, and, and and we don't, you don't need to have a conventional sex assault for it to be a sexual homicide. And that goes back to Crime Classification Manual, Volume One, nineteen ninety two, the work produced by the original core of uh, FBI analysts, along with uh, Ann Burgess, that's depicted in, in uh, Netflix's Mindhunters. So one of two things happens: it is a sexual homicide, and and the bindings were added again, possibly for for additional ritual sexual value. She may have been, you said photographs were taken from the scene. This setup, the way you describe it with the knife left in the body, the bindings, the face covered, this is either done to throw off law enforcement, which is the whole purpose of staging is to, cre is to create contradictory narratives that, that confuse how evidence is collected, how the theories formed by investigators early on, or this is all paraphilic and sexual and, and done for the for the benefit of the offender. Uh, you can't rule out Polaroids of her in this state having been taken, that it actually is very sexual and very ritual. So in which in that case would suggest that the, the what looks like undoing and the face being covered is again uh what we call subterfuge, a distraction for for police. So I know that doesn't I, I'm just riffing now because I'm learning yeah. all this right now, but just drawing on a repository of thousands of other cases it's one or the other. It's it's you're talking about someone who's has, has killed her for personal reasons and has elaborately staged the scene to throw off law enforcement. Apparently, did effectively because it's still cold forty three years later. Or 
the only staging might be the apparent undoing and all of these efforts that require spending a significant amount of time with the body and introducing further evidence, risk of being seen by a like most people want to get in and out of there. The excessive time spent post-mortem with the body to elaborately do all this stuff is conversely uh, ritual and probably necrophilic, which means that this is not a, a newbie offender. This is probably a sophomore offender as has killed probably at least two other people. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. There's something that we learned in our interview with Sheila's aunt, Terry, that hadn't come up before. And at the end of this quick clip with Terry, we will hear from original investigator Tom Mitchell, his thoughts on this. I had dropped off her. She had a trunk. Like a clothing trunk? Yeah, some of her stuff in it, all her pictures, which that's about the only thing that was missing. She loved showing pictures. This is my baby. This is Colorado. This is... You know, this is my Aunt T. But there was a smaller box of photos? Yeah, there was a box okay. of photos. And that was what's missing now? That was what's missing. Do you know for a fact that she did have them inside and had looked at them before? She told her mother she had them. Oh, she did? Okay. Yeah. You know, it would be just like her to go, you want to see my baby? And yeah. this is in California, and this is in Colorado. Uh, I'd rather not comment what what is missing from the apartment, if anything. We asked Michael his thoughts on the potentially missing photos. So the police could, I would say, conclusively determine if these photographs were taken because there would be, at the time, you had to get photographs developed uh, in Saratoga Springs. There would be a handful of places to get that done. And uh, there'd either be a receipt for that. They would almost certainly canvas uh, those stores that, that provided that service to see if, if that had been done. Uh, there was probably a strip of negatives or even the, uh, the envelope that the photographs were provided and left behind and the photos gone. They may have already been put into frames. Uh, depends, again, that's information they could have gleaned from the interviews with her mother, perhaps. But we know that, that taking souvenirs is, again, highly paraphilic. So it's it's connected to sexual disorder, violent sexual fantasies. Uh, not always violent, but in, in this case, you're dealing with a criminal paraphiliac who's, whose sexual compulsions necessitate criminal activity. That brings us back to then that, yes, this is... We shouldn't no undue focus should not be placed on the undoing. It's probably incidental, distractionary, and you factor in bindings, post mortem activity with the body, post mortem staging, and in fact posing. Posing and staging are different. Staging is done to throw off police. It's instrumental. It it provides a, an investigative countermeasure buys the offender time frequently. Posing is purely expressive. It actually is detrimental to the offenders long-term prospects of getting away with it, but the erotic value of being there longer and, and, and moving the body around like a, like a possession and taking photographs or sketching it or, or, or doing other things to it is worth the risk because that's ultimately what this was all about for the offender. And this, this is going to then fertilize their, their, their future fantasies. And that, that's why I, I'm saying uh, this doesn't sound like a, a first-time offender. You, you don't start here. First-time offender is nervous, makes mistakes, will abandon the binding process perhaps halfway, will take the knife with him knowing that there's going to be maybe one day recoverable evidence on that, which there would be in this case. Again, it was about 10, 15 years later that law enforcement began to understand because there is no, uh, and I'm using scare quotes, rape uh, in, the, in the traditional narrowed thinking sense does not mean that this is not a, a sex act for somebody that's depraved. 
her encounter was sounds like somebody that was there with no weapons, no, no accessories or paraphernalia or weapons, and procured all of them at the scene, which opens up a realm of possibilities in terms of, again, is this an experienced offender who knows not to have this stuff? I mean, think of the Idaho University murders, right? The fact that the suspect was in can be proven to be in possession of this weapon ahead of time and if recovered after the fact is going to be huge in, in terms of how that case is prosecuted. So by procuring weapons at the scene, they're not traceable back to, to anyone but the victim in, in many cases, unless somebody else lived there. But I mean, this, this case is solvable. What's being done now with investigative genetic genealogy and, and, and a couple of these private labs in the US, Othram Inc. in particular in, in Texas, where, I mean, yeah, maybe there was not enough uh, nuclear DNA, uh, YSTR specific male DNA on the knife, on the, the gag, on the bindings uh, to qualify for entry into CODIS when the DNA data bank went online. But I can guarantee, all but guarantee you now, if those items have been properly preserved, micrograms, even nanograms of offender handler DNA can be recovered by one of these labs. And, and if he's not in the data bank, they'll find him through genetic records, genealogical records, that is. So yeah, it, it is solvable based just on what you've told me here today. And in your opinion, somebody who is capable of executing a crime like this or getting away with a crime like this, Saratoga Springs isn't like a huge city. It's a city, but it's a very small city and a lot of people know each other. How does somebody like that not stand out in a place like that uh, to the point where someone wasn't saying kind of saw that coming oh you know what i've been asking this for all, in all kinds of cases uh cold cases so let's take a comparatively recent one the delphi murders uh this or the snapchat murders the valentine's murders etc in delphi indiana and there's all these theories oh you know this has to be a drifter there's no way anyone in the small town could fly beneath the radar they arrested a guy in Colorado then that they for who was harassing people in a park and thought that might be related. And I, I said the entire time, no one but a local would know the intricacies of those trails uh, to be able to carry out this, to be as brazen to carry out this crime. He likely lives in the immediate vicinity and is there a lot. And lo and behold, the guy had never moved. Uh, he lived nearby in a town of like 12,000 people. I mean, we know a male's responsible, just again, going on the balance of probabilities, town of 12, cut that in half. You've now got 6,000 suspects. So uh, start there. Uh, I can think of two other cases in Indiana alone where it was always, the thought was it's a drifter. Uh, he, he then got busted for something else. He's in the state pen. He's never offended again. Look at the case of April Tinsley. The guy lived in a trailer park and never moved. And again, a, a few miles from the crime scene. And he never even turned up in a, in a police canvas. It makes no sense. I'm not sure how then they prioritize suspects other than rousting people they liked for it. and But the evidence obviously wasn't there. So, I mean, again, methodologies have improved. Uh, the, the research by groups like the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, which is the FBI's essentially academic wing that, so FBI arrests people, you know, puts together prosecutions, develops all this, all these methodologies with it. Somebody actually tracks, okay, uh, in this case, what are the demographic details of the offender? How many people did he kill before? And they keep all the metrics on these people. And it's all available now to, to law enforcement and to, to criminologists. So we, 
we have a massive data set to look at, okay, 1,975 previous cases using this MO, this is your offender profile. Let's start there versus let's start extraditing people arrested for remotely similar crimes from out of state and seeing if they'll confess to this because we've got nothing. So long story short, I bet he was a local or had local connections and how he eluded police interest is only they can explain. We wanted to ask you a little bit about... uh people who kill in duos. Um, we know this is more common than, than we believed um, with, with you mentioning that it was somewhere between 30 and 40% of serial killers have an accomplice uh, at least at one point during one part of their murder. So I guess the, the first question is how in the world does this happen? Is this some kind of lack of a better word, like some kind of chemistry that, that works with these two people? Yeah, it's quite disturbing and it is, is, is not very well studied. Uh, I mean, there's a, I can count on one hand the number of well-known uh, published criminologists who have published research on this and, 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 or interviewed one or both of, of the members of the team. And in some cases, and in all cases, it's, it's, a, horrifi- it's a horrifying coincidence, right, that, the, that these people uh, just happen to, to enter each other's orbit and are both mutually, not necessarily as, as badly deranged, but certainly on on the spectrum of of having crazy violent paraphilias and, and being willing to indulge them so you look at some of these idiots uh meet in prison where naturally so the toolbox killers uh Bitteker and Norris for instance met in prison realized exchanged stories about women they had sexually assaulted the fantasies they had realized that they're both going to get paroled at separate times that they would find a place to meet up and just drive around killing people um they were essentially a captive audience to each other's fantasies and one molded the other. There was no sort of clear, and people may want to argue with me on this, but there was no clear sort of alpha between those two. Uh, the same with uh, Leonard Lake and, and Charles Ng, who, who who met again by by classified ad, basically looking for a, a mercenary partner to, to go kill people with. And again, they lured using classifieds, ads, couples, to their residence in Northern California under the promise of work or, or, or other things. Uh, the answer classifieds for people selling things, killed them, stole their stuff. They relied on classified ads and then essentially this, this property where we'll never know how many people they, they, they brought their tortured, video recorded it, and killed. It, it was largely an egalitarian partnership, you could say. But then when you look at some of these other pairings, the Hillside Stranglers, for instance, who were cousins, uh, John Allen Muhammad and, and, and Lee Malvo, the DC snipers, who were a very weird, uh, almost pederastic relationship between them and John Allen Muhammad was obviously predatory in that case. And many of the, these team killers, Dean Coral, the Houston Candyman comes to mind again, prolific child predator who gravitates to murdering, sexually murdering children, but then also keeps some victims alive to use as partners, knowing that a child is more likely to get into a, a car where another young teen or another child is is sitting, thinking it's the father and he's not going to do anything to me in front of his his his, uh, his own kid. In reality, that kid is a lure and in on it. But in, so in many of these cases, there is a dominant alpha. And this is really about a psychopath who is able to get a hold of an impressionable, in many cases, not particularly bright, in many cases, also paraphilic, someone with some, because uh, they may have met under those circumstances, met under, again, in weird chat rooms or, or as part of a certain 
underground taboo community. Uh, so they have mutual interests, and then it's a matter of the of, of the dominant of the two. And this is seen with both male female teams and male male teams, essentially either through fear coercion or or just gaslighting and manipulation, bring conscript the other person into doing their dirty work frequently. So much so that it, to rewind the clock again, and this isn't a case of, of serial murder, but, but mass murder. If you look at the, the Boston bombings, the Boston Marathon bombings uh, committed by the Sarnav brothers, the one entered what was known as um, a Svengali defense. And this is why in team killer scenarios, the alpha is fre- frequently referred to as a Svengali figure. Now, this is an allusion to uh, the 1894 novel Trilby by George du Maurier, where there's this very mesmerizing, nefarious character known as Svengali, who is able to keep uh, this opera singer under his spell. And basically she was mesmerized by him and under completely under his control. And Sarnev's defense was he was under his accomplice's control. He would have never done any of this were it not for the hypnotic, influential power of his accomplice. And this is sort of a variation on Stockholm syndrome, right? Where, where someone begins to empathize with and, and, and idolize even their captor, the person who's oppressing them and, and who they're initially afraid of. So in Team Kindle scenarios, we, we've seen frequently this, this Svengali, uh, not necessarily defense in court when it eventually gets there, but, but frequently investigators know this, that there is a dominant, there is an alpha, there is this Svengali figure who, were it not for their influence, this other person likely would have in, been involved in some form of offending, but likely not sexual homicides of multiple people or kidnapping and torture. So they know they're the weak link. They'll try to flip them. Even if it's not called the Svengali defense, that, that is often what law enforcement rely on when they, they take the weaker link and try to flip them into a witness. In some cases, that bond is too strong for, again, thinking back to to, to some of these other cases like uh, the toolbox killers and and, and uh, Leonard Lake and Ing, Leonard Lake killed himself immediately when once police descended on them. Uh, Ing later entered Canada illegally and was found there, but loyal largely to the end in terms of not not saying much. So it's disturbing to think of if these paths hadn't crossed and this. And bear in mind, predators and psychopaths are very intuitive and they're very good at reading people's tells. Uh, they're very good at getting leverage on people, manipulating people. And if, you know, again, the, the often vulnerable, often disturb themselves, but corrigible, manageable person, impressionable person hadn't entered the orbit of, of the other, their cousin, their boyfriend, their brother, their coworker, uh, their victimizer, you know, history would, it wouldn't be much different. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. In the case of uh, the Prues, Patricia and Alan Prue, who murdered the Vermont teacher, Melissa Jenkins, it seemed like Patricia was the dominant in that relationship. And she even went so far as to prove it in court by apologizing for how weak her husband was for not owning up to the crimes, which I thought that that at first was a stroke of being vindictive and kind of lashing out. But is that just all ego? Partly, but that also speaks to the fact that she likely was uh, able to exert that that degree of control. I mean, if 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 she if her if her need for control is protracted all the way through to that hearing, and she's able to emasculate him 
and he's okay to go along with this. I mean, obviously this was discussed. Um, I mean, he, he's prepared obviously to let her characterize herself as, as the alpha and, and him as the submissive. Um, but I mean, those aren't believably cooked up as legal strategies. That's typically reflective of, of the actual dynamic uh, between the two. And uh, Eric Hickey, uh, Dr. Eric Hickey was a, a psychologist and criminologist. Uh, he's now retired, professor emeritus at California State University, Fresno. I mean, he, he's interviewed a number of, of serial killers, spent considerable time with Jeffrey Dahmer. In fact, if you've seen the Netflix series Dahmer, where they talk about, I think it's in the final episode, that his brain postmortem is being studied at CSU Fresno, that's who's studying it, was was Eric Hickey. So this this guy for years was one of my mentors, certainly, but I mean, was in terms of scholars, uh, the guy who had the best access to, to, to serial offenders and to mass murders. And there's a few others like James Allen Fox at uh, Northeastern and, and some others. But I mean, in terms of serial killers and then breaking them down into subtypes and subtypes of subtypes, uh, Hickey was the one who, who came up really with um, the different dynamic models of team killers. So female dominated, male female teams, male dominated fame male-female teams, male-dominated male-male teams, male-dominated non-familial male-male teams, so co-workers, former inmates. So you've got this, this tree, basically, of how are they connected, how did they meet, who's leading the group, and then and by group, I mean two or more, uh, and then or team, uh, and then based on that leadership scheme, how do they acquire their victims? It's all relatively prescribed when you when you break it down and you look at the history of them. And this is where we get like the total number from when you see that at any given point, Dean Coral, who's always thought to have acted alone, John Wayne Gacy, who's always thought to have acted alone. There's instances, there's there's two people thought to be his accessories and one of his survive and we can only guess who they are. We we sort of know of one, but one of his surviving victims said, you know, he had me on the ground, was choking me to death. And I thought we were in the house alone and a light came on in the other room and I saw a shadow who was just minding their own business about what was happening. So someone at the very least knew and helped him dispose of these bodies. So even beyond the ones we know about who operated as teams, many serial killers who history has characterized as individuals, as rogues acting alone at some point have had accessories before or after the fact or accomplices during their crimes or the disposal of bodies. One question that's uh, not so much connected to uh, duo killers, but um, how can investigators connect murders to the same killer? What if they're in a different jurisdiction? Well, this is the whole basis for the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, which is uh, a questionnaire of 300 plus uh, data points that is supposed to be, it's voluntary, it's discretionary, supposed to be completed and input into the system what type of weapon? So take the Shepard case. This this would be, I mean, a, a case ideal for VICAP because yeah. there's very specific nuanced behaviors, uh, you know, weapon brought to scene, yes or no, no, uh, you know, type of weapon, edged, manual, multiple, restraints used, yes, restraints brought to scene, no. I mean, these are all things that then could match the MO and signature seen in a crime in so Saratoga Springs, Sarasota, Florida. For that system to work, those questions need to be properly completed. Most of the time, they're not. And in most of the cases, they're not completed at all because it's, 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 it's a lot of work. It's not a top priority when you've got a case to sit down and fill all this out. But in theory, that system makes 
matches looking at the entire U.S., not sort of, uh, you know, you heard from another cop that, uh, you know, on a neighboring department that they have a similar case. This is a way of, of clinically streamlining matches between cities, counties, and states coast to coast. But again, I've been to conferences where people tout the successes of this thing. I've yet to see, you know, a well-known case where Department A calls Department B across the country and says, we've got a VICAP hit and, you know, let's let's start a task force and, uh, and, and, and find this guy. I do know of some VICAP hits over time that are significant in the same city. So it doesn't match interesting in, in space. It matches in time, like 10 years later. So that in itself is significant. That tells me at least if, if the local police department is, is using it consistently and effectively, it could be very useful in cold cases because when the guy resurfaces, you're going to be looking at, again, these substantive similarities in in MO and signature and things that weren't released to the public to, to indicate that this is someone emulating them or, or, or a copycat of some kind, especially years later. So that's one data-driven method, but that operates at sort of a... Uh, in a more qualitative form all the time for the, with the example that I, that I gave you, which is that a detective will see a case or inherit a case that reminds them of one they've worked before, one they heard about, and they start sort of just organically digging through it more. And of course, uh, the Murder Accountability Project, uh, where I'm on the board of directors, murderdata.org, we've got the largest data set, far larger than the Justice Department has, far larger than VICAP of every homicide in the U.S. going back to the 60s and any case really post-80s, law enforcement and the public can search using a miniaturized version of VICAP. So instead of 300 plus data points, we rely on six and we found linkages and, and matches in cases in Gary, Indiana, Chicago, Illinois, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and suspected cases everywhere from Arizona to Maryland right now that uh, are st- we're still having law enforcement look into. Man, I wish we could talk about this all day. I would, uh, as a final thought, I would encourage uh, you and your listeners and viewers to go to murderdata.org and just play around with it. We're in the midst of maybe some, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but we're, we're in talk with some possible tech partners now about to take this to the next level. But certainly it's, it's a, uh, if you're on a desktop or laptop, easily browsable. Uh, you can look up to see how many murders have been in your county or city, how many have been solved. Uh, what types of crimes get solved the most? Which ones go unsolved the most? Has your police department improved or regressed over the last 10 years in terms of total number of murders and how many they actually solve or clear is the term that we formally use. Uh, you can look for weird patterns in murder. You want to know how many people have been murdered over a drug debt by being thrown out of a window. You can look up and see how many cases in U.S. history that's happened and are they connected? You can really go down a rabbit hole, but it was designed principally for law enforcement and to compensate for the deficiencies in VICAP. Uh, but we're finding all kinds of other crazy little uh, patterns in the data and in terms of entire states not reporting for years at all how many murders are committed, the federal government failing to report since it became law in 1998 to how many cases they've solved or even investigate. Uh, so that would include the FBI and CIS Department of the Interior, which includes uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, National Park Service, which, believe it or not, has a fair number of homicides, uh, never made it to paper anywhere. So we are now digging up all those and, and will these cases will be known publicly for the first time. And contained in that data, I would be shocked 
if there's not one or more serial killers who no one knew existed until we, we went looking for them. And one final thought or question from me is, are you working on any new books? So my last book, How to Solve a Cold Case, that that was tough slugging. That was through the pandemic, through the lockdowns, through crazy technological changes and uh, changes in policing and public perceptions, policing and tactics. And I had to keep up with in multiple, multiple drafts So and, and re-edits. So I'd like to think that's about as that's the current state of the art in terms of cold case investigation captured in that book. So I'm going to cool my jets for at least a year and, and, and find out and decide. I've got a couple of ideas, but I'm, I'm not in a rush yet. I'm uh, sort of getting back to uh, some TV projects. So I just wrapped season four of uh, Time to Kill, which is a series on investigation discovery. It goes by other names internationally. It's syndicated internationally. Uh, which is a victimology show and just how important establishing a a victim's timeline is in terms of the final hours before their death. And then I just uh, shot and narrated also an episode of uh, an existing series on Paramount Plus called Never Seen Again, uh, which is about suspicious vanishings. It's very well done and it it features two cases, connected cases here in Canada. Uh, And when I was still a police officer, I was one of the lead investigators on the first one. And then after I left, moved on to my current role, the killer in that case struck again. And now we reveal in the episode who it was. He's now deceased. But So that'll be a month or so. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if you were like, and I'm doing a comedy set tomorrow night at, <laughs> at Swiss Chalet. Yeah, no, uh, not yet. Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks. Always good to come back on 